Welcome to the Mind Talks podcast. You are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. Our special guest today is in the sport of bobsleigh. Her position is currently a pilot, but previously a brake woman. Um, she has achieved multiple accolades that include gold and bronze at the World and North American Cups. She has previous experience in a world of track and field, namely in Shotport and Hammer. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guest to have and a warm, warm welcome to you, Cynthia Appiah. How are you, miss? Um, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here. Good, good, good. Thank good. you for coming on. Yes, we're definitely looking forward to this one. Cynthia, so we have a routine and it's all about going all the way back. So what was your first living memory of a sport, either playing or watching? Wow, first, oh man, that's going to take me back. I'd probably say the 96 Olympics in Atlanta, watching the 100-meter sprint with Donovan Bailey winning. Mm. Um, yeah, that just is such a huge memory because, I mean, sports is a huge thing in our family and watching that, I don't know, maybe subconsciously piqued an interest in me for uh, later on in life. Yeah, Donovan Bailey, I, re I remember that race myself. I think that... For me, I know there was like Barcelona when I was young, but the one that stands up to most was, was Atlanta. And it was Donovan Bailey and probably Michael Johnson. They were the two people that stood out the most. Um, but from that, um, was that one of the things that got you initially into to track and field when you were younger? Or did you look at other sports as well? I mean, it definitely piqued an interest, but I didn't get into competitive sport until grade six, where I had moved from one elementary school to another. And at that school, they had, um, I guess you could say, intercollegiate meets where we would face other schools in different regions. Um, and so in grade six, I joined my school's track and field team um, initially as a sprinter and as a thrower, um, which is an odd combination, obviously. Um, but yeah, we would face, uh, I went to a Catholic elementary school and we'd face other Catholic uh, elementary schools. And then eventually you would go to cities, um, from, I'm from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, and so in elementary school, the peak, um, competition would be cities for kids, um, under the age of, I think 14. And so at that point you would face like all the kids from the public schools, all the kids from the private schools. Um, and that was, I would say, my first foray into competitive sport life. Prior, prior to grade six, um, what was your relationship with sport? So in terms of, you know, from a hobby perspective, can you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I played sport at recess. I mean, I feel like that's a given. You have time to go play outside. Obviously, you're going to play a sport. Um, we have this game that I think most people call kickball, but in Canada, we call it soccer baseball. Um, and that was like my thing to do. So I was known for how far I could kick the ball. Um, and so I kind of gravitated towards that sport in, in elementary school. Uh, we also had like floor hockey that we would play during the lunch break. Um, but that was kind of like just between, you know, kids in the same grade. There wasn't really like a, a big competitive um, aspect to it. It was just more so like, Hey kids, burn off some energy before the second half of the school day. Go play hockey inside. That was pretty much it. And at, at what point did you um, start to take sport a little bit more seriously? Uh, definitely 
as I was graduating out of high school and going into university, um, at that point, I would always like every year of, of, of high school, I, I did um, what we call OFSA, which is Ontario or Provincial Championships here in Canada. And it wasn't until my final year of high school where my high school coach said, hey, the university coach is interested in talking to you. Um, at that year, I came bronze in the province or I came third in the province and had made um, all efforts to go to university, but hadn't really thought about competing in track and field in university like that never entered into my mind. And so when my high school coach came up to me and said, hey, that university coach that you're going to um, wants to talk to you and potentially set you up for university, that's when it kind of like dawned on me like, oh, I can actually do something with this. And so getting to talk to that university coach, um, his name was Richard. Um, he kind of was like, you know, we can get you some financial help. Um, it's not going to be a full ride scholarship because full ride scholarships don't really exist in Canada, but we can give you an entrance scholarship based on your academics that you can use towards tuition. And that's going to obviously help um, because you're an athlete as well. Um, and so uh, in university, track and field in, in Canada, you have five years of eligibility, which I used up all five years of. And that was where I was like, okay, I can actually do something with this. Um, you know, going to Canadian championships and competing against high level Olympic level athletes. I was like, Oh, you know, sport might be something I can do beyond university and, and try and make a career out of it. I always find it fascinating with athletes. Are, you know, when we ask them about a the transition, about when it became a thing where they wanted to take it seriously and it always comes at different ages so I think for me that your age um, you know on the cusp of high school and going into university that's quite a late age would you say though before that because you didn't have that you know that viewpoint that yeah you wanted to get to the top do you think that it almost eased the pressure off you and therefore it just helped you just get better without thinking of this massive vision of becoming, you know, something special. Definitely. Yeah. Cause I think not having that pressure, you actually enjoy what you're doing. Like I did uh, shot put and at that time discus because I thoroughly enjoyed sport as it was. Um, academically, I was, I was a very good student, but I liked having that, you know, break away from just being in my studies and having to do homework um, and so I enjoyed it simply for the pure fact of I get to compete, do something outside of school while still representing my school. Um, and yeah, 18, I, yeah, I think I was 18 at that point, going from high school to university. 18 is a pretty late age to really dedicate yourself to a sport. You know, when you hear of Olympic athletes, they say, you know, I started when I was two or three. Um, and so when you hear 18, you're like, uh, you know, I think you missed the boat on that one. Are you sure you can even make a career out of it? But, um, you know, track, especially being a thrower, it's a, it's a little different. You kind of have that leeway to be a little bit older when you decide or make that decision that you want to dedicate you know, the next however, however many years to being a high level elite athlete. And how did your family react when you decided to, to pursue that? They were apprehensive. I mean, um, you know, my parents are from Ghana and they instilled education from the outset. You know, make sure you go get um, your degree or diploma, whatever. Make sure you finish school. That was what they wanted for us because... 
they both worked, you know, low paying factory jobs and they didn't want their kids to follow that path. So education was always at the forefront for us. And we had heard, um, you know, kind of anecdotal stories of kids who focused too much on sports and then didn't amass anything. Um, and they didn't want that for any of their kids, but especially for me, cause I was the one that kind of was pursuing sport the most. Um, but they also knew that because academically I was, you know, very good, it wasn't going to be too much of a challenge for me. I wasn't going to allow for my school work and my studies to fall to the wayside. Um, mainly because again, my, Af my parents are African. I'm not about to not come to come home with A's. I, I'm not ready to deal with that nonsense, you know? So <laughs> I had to, I had to make sure that, um, in, in order to be able to pursue my athletic career, I had to keep my schooling up as well. Yeah. I think that was my next question. What was the negotiation? But I think you kind of alluded to it, that it was just maintaining those grades, because I think that's something that's really, um, undercovered is this idea you know people that come from you know certain backgrounds and it's, and it's not just um african backgrounds it's really not just african backgrounds you know it's other backgrounds too and they have this similar problem but what's not really spoken about is this idea of negotiation how how do you overcome that barrier of you know parents having that apprehensions but you you know you did allude to the fact that it was um your grades was there anything else that helped um, the negotiation process with your parents? Um, probably my stubbornness because I was not <laughs> about to allow them to not let me do it. And I think as I progressed and started to get um, successful in it, they saw, you know, okay, she obviously knows what she's doing. She can handle the pressure and the, the uh, commitment to both and not let one fall to the wayside over the other. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I hate to admit it, but I am very headstrong and I'm very persuasive and, um, it just took, you know, letting them know that I wasn't going to let up and that I was going to pursue both until the day came where I couldn't do sport anymore. And how, how was it mentally for you, the mind switch when you decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue it compared to when you were just, um, it was just a hobby really. I mean, it's hard because I, I can compartmentalize things very, very well. When I'm working on my, my schooling and my studies, that's what I'm dedicating to. And when it's time to train and it's time to compete, I can focus on that. So mentally, I put all the energy that I need into whatever task I have at hand. Um, there were times it was difficult, um, especially later on throughout my university career where um, I had to do like a part-time job to be able to uh, maintain the upkeep of being in a sport. Being like track and field compared to other sports isn't that expensive. Um, but when you're a thrower, because a lot of times you kind of are responsible for your own equipment, whether it's the shot, the hammer or the disc, the shoes, um, the training camp fees, team fees, all those things start to add up. And so, um, the financial aid I was getting from the school was no longer enough and I had to work in addition to making sure that my responsibilities at home were also met. So like helping my sisters out, helping the house out. So at some point there were moments where um, I struggled to keep up and it manifested itself in, you know, poor performances on the track, 
um, poor results on tests or assignments. Um, and it took me sitting down and really thinking, okay, what am I prioritizing here? Am I prioritizing the right things? And what am I willing to let go in order to achieve what I actually wanted in life? And so that's where I started to slowly move away from track and field. And then Bobsay kind of just, you know, inched its way into life. And I was able to kind of balance it a lot better that way. Before we move, it, move on to Bobsleigh, um, I want to talk to you about, you know, Shotport and Hammer. So can you just talk to us about that process? So did you find Shotport and Hammer or did Shotport and Hammer find you? What, how did it happen? I would say shot put found me and then I found hammer. So in elementary school, you're limited to the events that you can do. Obviously, safety wise, they're not going to allow, you know, 12 year old kids <laughs> swinging things around their head and hope for the best. So hammer is not allowed. And I think discus isn't allowed. So it's just shot put. Like, I don't even think you can have a javelin in elementary school. And I had this. I don't know how it came, but I was just known as the strong girl at my school and so everyone was like, yo, Sin, you got to do shot put. You got to do it. And I'll be honest, the first time I threw a shot put, I didn't even make the team. Like the teacher was like, OK, Sin, we're not picking you for shot put. Um, you're just going to do the sprints. But then, I, again, like I said, I'm very headstrong and I'm stubborn. So the next year I came back and I was like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make sure like I have a reputation now. I'm known as a strong girl and I can do shot put like that's bad. <laughs> So the next year I came back and I threw the standard that the teachers were looking for, which, I mean, it's elementary school, so there really isn't a standard, but they're not just going to put anybody in. But yeah, I came in and I showed them that I was worthy of being on the team for shot put as well as sprints. Um, and miscommunication had happened where shot put and, and the 100 meter sprint were at the same time. But my teacher was like, oh, go do shot put because by the time you're done shot put, the 100 meter will still be running. And me not thinking through, I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, for sure. That's, that's definitely going to make sense. So I went and did shot put and I did well. I think I came second in that meet. And by the time I came back, obviously the 100 meters was already done. And so that moment, I guess you can say, is like the fork in the road where it's like, okay, now I'm being channeled towards shot put and I just stuck with it ever since. And then... When I did it in high school and then moved on to university, Hammer is uh, thrown only in university. And so that kind of like brought Hammer into my world. And I enjoyed it from the moment that I touched the Hammer. And, and what made you move away from Hammer and Shot Put to, to the world of bobsleigh? Honestly, I, so I went to the 2012 uh, Olympic trials. And I had quite possibly the worst performance I think I've ever had in my athletic career. And I include every sport that I've ever done. Um, you know, side note, I swam, uh, my, I, like I, ran, I swam for my high school swim team and I was the second slowest girl on the team, right? Like people were drying off and I was just making my way back to the other end of the swimming. That's how bad I was at swimming. <laughs> but like, um, that 2012 Olympic trials was the worst performance I had ever had. And I kind of was just like, man, if I can't even make it um, through Olympic trials, I'm not going to make it to the Olympics as a whole. And I kind of started comparing myself to the other girls I was comp competing against. And I saw my performances not, you know, matching what it needed to be to go to the Olympics and, and compete for Canada at the Summer Games. And so 
Prior to that, like in 2010, Vancouver hosted the Winter Games and I watched bobsleigh on TV and I thought it was super cool. And, you know, we've all seen the movie Cool Runnings and so that also piqued my interest. But it was actually watching Shelly Ann Brown at those Olympic Games, you know, seeing a black person compete in the Winter Olympics. I mean, say what you want. There are some stereotypes that unfortunately linger on and a lot of people do believe that win- black people don't compete in winter game- or in winter events. But seeing Shelly Ann, I was like, oh, shoot, I guess black people can. And I kind of put that towards the back burner. But as I was like struggling to, you know, match performances in shot put and hammer, you know, bobsleigh kept on peaking in the back of my head. And I would say the um, moment that I kind of was like, okay, bobsleigh is it for me was in, I can't remember if it was summer of 2011 or summer 2012. Um, the Ontario bobsleigh team came into my university and they were hosting a dryland camp. And usually at these dryland camps, what they do is they have you run a 30 meter sprint. They have you, you know, toss a med ball, uh, and do some lifts like power clean squat bench. And I did well through their test camp and they were like, Hey, we want you to come out and try out for the team, um, in the fall. I still had school, so I didn't want to um, throw school off to the side to go and chase something that I wasn't really hundred percent sure I was good at. Um, but that was like the start of like, okay, once I'm done my university career and I'm done shot put in, in hammer, I'm going to try my hand at bobsleigh. I'm fascinated. So would you say in hindsight, if you was to go back, if you were to go back, would you maybe try one more Olympics or do you think this was something that naturally um, was just naturally a natural progression for you into bobsleigh? I think it was a natural progression. I, if I had stuck around for another Olympic cycle to try and make the summer games, I don't think I would have any of the success that I've achieved right now. Um, because that would have just, I feel, pushed the inevitable. And even though bobsleigh is considered like a second career sport where you have people who come into it when they're in their early to mid twenties, that's right around the time that I switched into bobsleigh was my mid early to mid twenties. If I had waited until, you know, to try my hand at going for Rio and then not make it, that would have made me 26 at that point. And now I have, you know, a year and a half between, Rio and Pyeongchang to now and try and make the team. Um, and for me, like when I, gra- so I graduated university in 2013 and I didn't make the national team until 2015 because as a thrower, you know, we're bigger. So I had to lose all this weight. I had to learn how to sprint. And so that two years I needed to make the team. If I had waited until the end of Rio, that two years would have pushed me to Pyeongchang and, you know, who knows, I probably wouldn't have made that Olympic team. Um, so I think it was, you know, almost fate that I, I decided after the London Olympic uh, trials to, you know, finish my education, finish shot put, and then kind of move on to bobsleigh. How was it like for you um, adapting to the type of training that comes with bobsleigh compared to, to hammer and shot put? In some aspects, it kind of is similar. And it, in some aspects, it's completely different. Um, a lot of the weight training is very similar, a lot of Olympic lifting. So power cleaning, snatch, um, squatting and all that stuff. Um, but the new element that I had to bring in was sprinting, which is something that I hadn't done since I was in grade eight. Um, because once I left sprinting and went straight into shot put, I never really looked back. And so, um, 
you know, at that point in time, I think I was like 90 kilos in weight when I officially made this transition from shot put to bobsleigh and 90 kilos on a girl, you're not really running that fast. So in addition to losing the weight and learning sprint mechanics, I also had to, you know, make sure that my body was adapting well to what I essentially was going to be putting myself up to. Um, and so that's why it took me two years to, um, you know, switch from, shot put and make the national team for Canada because you know all these things essentially were going against me how did you how did you mentally overcome the potential dangers um when you first started so the first time I ever sat in a bobsleigh I was um it was in Lake Placid New York uh, which is about five hours away from New York City they have a track out there and I went to a driving school so it was me and this other girl, and we were going to take turns switching back and forth between sitting in the front and sitting in the back. And they start you halfway down the track so you're not going off the top and, you know, flying off the track and hurting yourself. So they really do a graduated learning program to get you used to it. Um, that being said, the first time I sat in the sled, I immediately questioned every decision that brought me to that point. I was like, what am I doing? What am I getting myself into? But that passion to potentially make the Winter Olympics superseded the fear that I had. Um, and I had obviously watched races before that point, and I knew there were inherent dangers. Um, you know, you can get hurt, you can break bones. Um, but in my messed up mind, I thought that that was worth it in some capacity to try and make it to the Olympic team. And trying to make it to the Olympic team, how how did you how did you mentally deal with that? Like thinking this is a completely different sport to 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 track well tracking for well, hammer and um, shot put. How did you deal with it mentally? You know, it's weird because like I dealt with it. I think pretty well. I mean, I think I was so driven with at you know making this team at all costs, or just just even making the national team at all costs. That mentally, I like I said, I'm, I'm very um, focused on any task at hand and I can compartmentalize it. And so when I'm focusing on bobsleigh, that's the only thing that I'm working towards. And so I basically reoriented my entire life to try and facilitate this dream that I was trying to chase after. And it, it was different, but the same at the same time, because as a brakeman, which is the position that I came into the sport as, you know, your your role is to be the engine uh, the engine of the sled so it's about being powerful and forceful and i use the tools that i had at being a shot putter which you know being powerful and and explosive are part and parcel with being successful in shot put i brought those tools into bobsleigh and i kind of reoriented my mind of being like okay i'm going to push this sled as fast as possible using the tools that i have at hand with me you've mentioned olympics um a number of occasions and one of the things that I've realized with a lot of athletes is obsession it's that obsession to get into the top um, were there any tips given to you um, to ensure that you do you stay you maintain this obsession but it doesn't hinder you at the same time um First, yeah, I would say obsession is a very, very good word to use because 
yeah, the way it kind of takes over your life as an amateur athlete, it, it, it almost borders on obsession. But I mean, I can't name specific people, but definitely things were said, you know, you want to be able to commit fully to it, but you don't want it to be such a blind obsession to the point that you kind of lose yourself in it. And, you know, you, you start, you, you know, missing out on, on family events and hanging out with friends. Like you still want to have that balance of normalcy because if you don't, then you just go stir crazy because the second things start to fall apart and you're not achieving your dream. Now you've lost yourself. Your identity is gone. And I think that's something that you see with a lot of athletes as they near retirement and they've been in the sport for a long time where their sole identity has been being an athlete. Um, and I'm not saying it's because they're obsessed, but it's like, you know, that's, that's the, um, that's kind of the fear that I would, I think I had going into is like, I didn't want it to become to a point where my sole identity was being an athlete. So I always tried to make sure I had that nice balance of regular life in addition to sport life. My next question kind of links to obsession. So sacrifices, what, what sacrifices did you have to make? Um, to ensure that you are at the peak level to perform? There are so many sacrifices you make. I mean, hanging out with um, friends and being able to go to the club or, you know, nutrition for me is a huge thing. Coming into the sport of bobsleigh, being the bigger girl, I always have to make sure I'm maintaining my weight, which is very rare. A lot of women who come into the sport of bobsleigh um, need to gain weight because a lot of them are sprinters or jumpers and they come in. So as a thrower, I had to always make sure that I kept my nutrition on, um, you know, exact essentially. Like I couldn't afford to have a weekend bender. Um, but the other thing is like being from Toronto, our team is based out in Calgary, which is about a four hour plane ride. So more often than not, I was away from home. And so you miss out on, you know, super key moments like my nieces were born and I didn't get to really hang out with them the first few years that they were born you miss out on birthdays and parties weddings and stuff like that but those are the sacrifices that you have to kind of be willing to make in order to achieve the goal that you're looking for because I if you don't make it you don't want it you don't want to look back on it and be like man did I do everything I I needed to do to make sure that I achieved my goal you know, should I have um, declined that invitation to that party or should I have, you know, left earlier so that I could get sleep and recover and all that stuff? Um, you know, some people do take it a little bit overboard. I, I think I'm, I'm better in that sense that I, I kind of recognize if I'm being too committed to something. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of sacrifices. You, meet, you miss out on hanging out with your family and you're on the road a lot of the time. And so a lot of the things that, you know, a lot of my age mates and peers are doing, I miss out on because I have to, you know, make sure I'm training and putting all the effort I can to make sure my goals are achieved. Another area that I think is um, undercovered is homesickness. So can you talk, can you give a specific story where you felt homesick and how did you overcome that homesickness? Um, so... <laughs> One of my least favorite things about bobsleigh is uh, the fact that we do have to centralize out here in Calgary in the summer. And in Toronto, like, summers in Toronto are live. 
So we have like Carabana, which is very similar to Notting Hill for you guys. It is like my favorite weekend in the city. And not being able to be there for the last few years, I think I've missed out on Carabana for like the last five or six years. You know, seeing the pictures come up, I get high key jealous. Um, another big event for me is Afrofest, which is yeah, a little bit on the smaller scale of Carabana, but you know, it's, it's a, an event nonetheless. Um, and, you know, getting to hang out with family during that weekend is, is, you know, for me, it's one of my favorite things to do in the summer. Um, but I would say the, the biggest thing for me is, um, missing on, missing out on like the Ganyan events that we have in, in Toronto. Um, so my family is, uh, very, very, um, um, involved with the church. Um, and so one of the big things for the Ganyan Toronto community is the, Ganyan Catholic Church picnic. It's not really a picnic. It's just like a, a jam in a park somewhere. But, <laughs> but <laughs> we call it picnic. But yeah, like, you know, that community um, in, a, event, you know, hanging out with my cousins and hanging out with my siblings who I hold near and dear to me, you know, I get homesick a lot because it's like I have to, I have to be in Calgary to make sure that I'm training and doing a lot of the sports spe- specific training that I need for bobsleigh. Unfortunately, bobsleigh is not one of those sports where all you can do is just sprint on a track and, you know, you're good to go. Um, we have uh, pushing tracks that we have in Calgary. And um, the sooner you're out here and using that as part of your training um, protocol, the better you are in the sport. And so I have to make that sacrifice of leaving a lot sooner, um, usually, you know, early July or late June coming out to Calgary so I can train and, and get better for the next season. With, with all athletes, there is, there are challenges that, that come. What were the biggest challenges for you? Definitely financially. Um, bobsleigh is not a cheap sport. Even as a brakeman, when you come in, you're really only expected to buy the, the spikes, a helmet, um, and something we call a burn vest, which is like a Kevlar shirt to make sure that we don't get any friction burns in the event of a crash. Um, but those things add up. Um, and in Canada, to join the team, we have something called team fees, which can range anywhere from like three to five grand, depending on the year and the budget. Um, and so all those fees, you know, add up. And so when I first came into the sport, I was lucky enough in that I had saved up some money from work to be able to pay these things. Um, but I grew up in a low income family, so I couldn't necessarily rely on my parents to be able to provide for these costs. And so I worked multiple jobs for a few years before I even made the national team. And even in the summers after I made the team, I would still have to go back and work a part time job to be able to fund the next upcoming season. Um, and then now as I've transitioned from brakeman to pilot, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a challenge that's, you know, stopped me from achieving my goals, but it is um, a challenge nonetheless to kind of just break down the negative stereotypes and, and um, beliefs that are held out there. Like I mentioned earlier, um, there is that long held belief that black people don't do winter events. Bobsleigh is kind of like the one outlier in that there has been um, a good history of black athletes that have come into the sport but they've usually been limited to the brakeman role. And um, initially there weren't a lot of black pilots and there was this 
and it's still held to this day, which is so dumb that black people just don't make good drivers. It's kind of similar to like the NFL where people are like, you know, black players don't make good quarterbacks, which yep, exactly. Right. Like it, it sounds so dumb when you hear it on its face, but some people like hold true to that um, for reasons that I don't care to figure out because that's, that's their problem. That's not mine. But, you know, since transitioning into, into bobsleigh or into piloting, um, I kind of almost been on this like silent crusade to kind of shut down these naysayers. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but before that, there's something that I've, I, I really want to um, tackle. So you come from a low income family and whenever we hear about low income families, there's always this negativity and in stigma. But actually what I want to ask you is coming from a low income family, can you give one positive, um, one positive trait that helped you or that has helped you in bobsleigh? I would say um, the one positive thing coming from a low-income family is knowing that you have to essentially earn everything. Like you have to work hard for it. Not to say that like people don't work hard for it regardless of your social economic status, but you know, you grow up learning that you have to, um, you know, kind of like, have grit and that you the, it's hard to to explain it but like there's just a mentality that I feel people from that kind of background have where it's like you know that there isn't really anyone you can turn to but yourself and so you are the only person that's going to help achieve whatever goal you're trying to get um, you know, you kind of don't have that financial security blanket of being able to go to mom and dad or grandma and grandpa to be like, hey, you know, I need X amount of dollars to pay for this. Can you help me out? You got to source that yourself. And so it's like that tenacity that I think um, I've grown up with of being able to hustle um, independently, knowing that, you know, I have myself to blame, but I also have myself to rely on to make sure that come hell or high water, I'm going to make sure I'm achieving this. When you changed to become a pilot, was there any, like, was there anyone that um, criticized that decision? You know what? Like, funny enough, I would say the Canadian program has been very, very, very supportive. Like, top down. When I said I wanted to try my hand at it, they were like, we want you like we think you know this is something that you should try out because i had already made a name for myself um as a pusher uh like i said you know bobsleigh is a very um a very power explosive driven sport in that the the uh, advantage that you create for yourself at the start is going to multiply like it's a known fact in our sport and so We've seen over the years a lot of these former brakemen switching over into the driving role and being successful right off the bat. You know, prior to, I would say, 2010, 2014, you had a lot of drivers that um, really didn't ca not care, but didn't put as much focus on the push and relied mostly on having a fast brakeman. But then the transition switch where it's like, okay, you need both people on the sled in the context of two men and two women, you need both people to be very fast. So if you have a fast brakeman switching to be a pilot and then you put another fast brakeman behind them, that's going to be, you know, an all-star team that's going to be hard to beat. So when I made my intentions known to my federation that I wanted to switch to being a pilot, 
they had said, you know, we've seen this successfully happen with the American team where Alana Myers-Taylor Myers switched from being a brakeman to a pilot and in four years was able to win an Olympic medal. Um, in the sport of bobsleigh, if you are a pilot, it takes about eight years to become a decent um, enough pilot where you're winning medals. And she was able to chop that down in half to four years in the span of one quad, was able to win an Olympic medal. And so they kind of saw that blueprint and were like, okay, well, we can try and replicate that with you. Um, so I would say internally, I didn't, I didn't have any blowback or any pushback on, on switching to the pilot role. I was very much encouraged to switch over. I always find it fascinating with other, you know, groups and they, they, they can't seem to fathom the importance of representation. And I, you've briefly mentioned um, Shelly Ann Brown and she, she, she came before you. Um, can you just talk about the impact she had on you? But more importantly, in your own words, why does representation matter? Like I said, you know, Shel seeing Shelly Ann during the Vancouver Games kind of like opened my eyes to the possibilities. And I know there are people who are going to, you know, either listen to this or listen to other people who talk about rep representation and be like, why does it matter? And it's usually people who've been used to seeing themselves on TV. So they know that the world is their oyster and that there are possibilities that they can achieve no matter what. But when you don't see yourself represented in every realm, you kind of put roadblocks on yourself because you're like, oh, we don't do that. Black people don't do that. That's not something that we do. And until someone challenges that by saying, no, that's actually possible, those roadblocks continue to be held in that place. So for me, representation is crucial because I don't want, like regardless of race, I don't want anybody to see something and be like, oh, that's cool. But then immediately follow that thought with, that's not for me. Like, why, why is it that that's not for you? You should be able to pursue anything that you want. And, you know, until it's not a viable option for you, but that it, like the viable option not being for you is because of something else other than your skin color. Like, why wouldn't you want to pursue that? And so for me, that's where I'm hoping that in, you know, following the footsteps of Shelly Ann Brown, following in the footsteps of Alana Myers-Taylor, that I continue to be the representation for the next upcoming generation of athletes that either watch bobsleigh or even are in bobsleigh right now. You know, there are a lot of black athletes that are still brakemen that, you know, maybe they're contemplating switching to being a pilot now. And it's because we're seeing more and more black pilots in our sport. Like when I first started watching bobsleigh, I think there may have been like two or three um, in the entire sport. And I think that that was like, you know, mostly on the women's side. I can't think of any male black pilots. Now there are on both sides, uh, male and female black pilots. And it's like, eventually it'll be the norm, but you know, we still got inroads to make. And what would you say as a bobsleigh has been the most disappointing thing for you? And how did you overcome that? Um, I'll break it up into two parts. So for me, the most disappointing part about bobsleigh was being named a racing brakeman uh, for the Pyeongchang Games. So at the beginning of that season, our season usually starts in October um, with like team testing, team trials, and then we head off onto the World Cup season. So I came out of that off season, I think the 
best I had ever been. Like I was the fittest I had ever been. I'd run the fastest I'd ever uh, run. I broke team records in our uh, power clean and med ball toss. Like I was fit. And I had made a name for myself for as being one of the fastest break women on the team. But as the season progressed, I saw myself being given less and less opportunities to race. And I like have this like blessing and curse in being ha- uh, hyper aware. And so I kind of saw it as, oh, shoot, I think they're trying to push me out and not be on the Olympic team. But I wasn't about to give up either. And I was like, listen, every time I touch the sled, whether it's racing or whether it's training, I'm going to give, you know, I'm going to add like uh, another tick in my column as to why I should be a racing brakeman. Um, one of the things that Neville Wright has always told me is like, every time you touch a sled, you got to think of it as an audition. The coaches are always watching and they're always seeing, what are you doing? Are you taking your foot off the gas pedal? Cause it's a training day. Or are you trying to show, you know, that you have what it takes to be a racing athlete. And so I took that to heart and said, every time I touch that sled, I'm going to make sure that it was next to impossible to pull me off of that sled for that race week. Um, and you know, I did everything I could and the decision was made to have me be an alternate at the Olympic Games, which is so heartbreaking because you almost become like a shadow. You don't live in the Olympic Village during the uh, two weeks that the Olympics were running. You, you have to stay off site, but then still have to like shuttle yourself to and from, you know, the venue that the races are at, the venue where you're going to be eating your meals and then back to your hotel each day. You do the majority of the runs because you got to rest the race brakemen so that they're fresh and ready to go on race day. So as an alternate, I basically was a workhorse. You know, I had to be there to help polish the runners. I had to be there to help move the sleds. And then I also had to make sure that every day was a fast pushing day. I could never take my foot off the gas pedal because I had to replicate race day pushes for um, the pilots that I was sliding for that day. And I think the most disappointing part about that Olympic experience was that uh, it got to a point where the training pushes that I was giving the girls on their respective days was faster than some of the race pushes that they got on the Olympic day. So you imagine like training day is supposed to be like for the pilots, they usually, you know, go maybe 60% effort and the brakeman usually go hundred percent effort. And then on race day, everyone's firing on all cylinders. It's hundred percent effort. So you're supposed to be racing or pushing faster on race day. So to see that some of these girls were pushing slower on the race day than I I had done in training, that was just like, you know, more salt in the wound of like, man, I should be there. These girls aren't even giving it 100% and I'm on the sideline watching. Um, And then the other side of it in terms of the site, like the second part of that question, uh, what's also been disappointing is, um, I think it was like last summer or two summers ago, uh, Alana wrote an article for USA, uh, Team USA, I think it was like the United States Olympic Committee, their website, she wrote an article about hearing some of the um, racist comments that had been made about black athletes, um, specifically uh, a particular sled maker saying that he didn't want monkeys driving his sled um, and that black people just are inherently bad drivers. So it's like, this is a recent thing that's been said. And you know, I, we have to go into this world and hope and, or into the sporting world and, and hope that everyone is, you know, championing us on, on our successes and, you know, hoping for the best for everyone. But then, you know, there are certain subsets of people in the sport that are like, 
inherently going to hate on us just because of the color of our skin. So that's been super disappointing to hear. So this has completely changed the angle because I had a question, but I think now I need to change it. Do you, do you, do you have a burden? Like, do you hold that burden um, when you hear comments like that? So every time you go out there, do you feel that burden? If I don't get this right, there may be someone out there that rep that, you know, if, that represents my whole race just because I do something wrong. Do you, do you feel that burden or are you able to um, deal with that and, you know, you're able to almost isolate it in a, in a place where it's meant to be, which is pretty much nowhere in your mind? It's a bit of both. I mean, I, in the back of my mind, I definitely do hold on to those fears of, if I mess up, is someone going to use this as an example of like, see, I told you, they can't do it. Why are we entertaining this farce? But at the same time, I can't let that thought prevail every single thing that I do. And I got to be able to um, compete and train and perform um, no matter what. And like not let that, you know, negative thought affect me. Because if I do, then it's almost like a confirmation bias. I'm going to essentially prove to them what they're hoping to see, which is that I fail and that I, that, uh, you know, I, I prove their point that black people aren't meant to do this. So I think it's a bit of a balance in the sense of like making sure that I, I don't let that fear get to me, but also know that that is definitely a part of the reason of why I do what I do. And that's what pushes me to do what I do. With some of those comments, were there ever times when you felt like giving up? And if so, how did you um, push yourself not to do so? For me, giving up was never in the question. Um, I think the I would never want to give someone that satisfaction of knowing that they beat me or beat a fellow competitor by the comments that they said. Um, I hate to use the trope, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me or names will never hurt me. And that's the kind of mentality I have to go into it with, right? Like if I were to kind of get downtrodden by every negative comment that I had heard or had been thrown my way, you know, I would be a mess in life and in sport. So, you know, like I said, the, with me being super stubborn and headstrong, I use it as fuel to be like, I'm going to show you guys up and, you know, allow you to look stupid without actually saying it, you know? The disappointment of, you know, not being a first team, first teamer, um, but yet still being very much part of the team is something that really stands out for me. Um, and since you've mentioned it, it's been in my head because the first thing that came to mind is, you know, football in the UK. So 11 on 11, yeah, you don't make it and you're on the subs bench. You've got no part to play. They may bring you on the 70th minute. They may bring you on the 75th minute. By that time, you know, more than likely the game has already been concluded. Um, my question to you is really really important for anyone who's young or anyone who's in a team sport and has dealt with that disappointment of not being in the first team or basically starting how did you because i just honestly i can't get over this 
Edwin knows what I'm like. The listeners who know me personally know what I'm like. If I was a sub, oh my goodness, my head would completely go, would just completely blow. So this is really, really important for the young listeners. How and what strategies do you have to ensure that you maintain that level despite that huge disappointment? First and foremost, know that disappointment will happen. I mean, it's almost inevitable. And I am a big proponent of allowing whatever emotions you need to let out to be let out. Because the worst thing you could do is stifle that because it ends up coming out in the worst way sometime down the line. So like for me, I let people know I was upset that I was an alternate at the Olympic Games. I was not walking around being cheery and happy. And in some aspects, I think that I should have been better in controlling my emotions. But at that moment in time and at the maturity level, and I'm not saying I was immature, but at the level I was at, that was the best way I could express myself. And I let people know, like I, I wore my heart on my sleeve. I was not a happy camper. Um, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't going to quit right after, because I, again, had a terrible experience at the Olympic games, but after I went home and after having all those conversations with my coaches and with my teammates and, you know, former athletes and actually getting a chance to really decompress and, and look at what had happened and making a conscious decision as to what was going to happen when I was calm, that I think being in that moment is crucial. You never want to make a rash decision when you're in an emotional state because you're going to make a decision that you're going to regret. More likely than not, you'll regret the decision. So you need to be in a, in a state where you're calm and controlled. And, you know, there's no telling how long that takes, but you got to let yourself get to that point of being able to allow yourself to decompress. And then once you're at that moment, you got to look at what happened and see where you want to go from that point. You can either just be like, you know what, that's it. I'm done with you guys, you know, say all the expletives in the world and, you know, throw up some, some suggestive hand symbols to the world and just walk away. Or you can look at it and be like, okay, that happened. But I know deep in myself that this isn't the end for me. And I can take this very disappoint disappointing and upsetting moment and use that to fuel my passion even further. Because no one knows you better than yourself. And if you feel in your hardest of hearts that you've got what it takes to make it, and this is just a setback, despite it being a major setback, if you have that determination you will find a way to overcome it and then better yourself in the future. So for any young athletes that are kind of going through that moment right now where you're like, man, things aren't going the way I want it to go or, you know, this happened and it's not how I planned it. Make sure that you don't make a decision that you're going to regret in a few months or a few years from now. If you fully believe in yourself, even if nobody else believes in you, if you fully believe in yourself, like rationally, obviously I don't want any irrational thoughts being um, put out there, but if you rationally believe in your, in your craft and your, inability, and your ability to do something, use that as fuel to motivate yourself to be better for the next opportunity that comes. That's fantastic. I think this is my last question to you. 
So in terms of a bobsleigh, what are the most important ingredients do you think someone needs to be a successful bobsleigh? There are so many things. Obviously, athleticism. I mean, it's a sport. Um, you got to be strong. You got to be fast and powerful. Um, but you don't have to be the fastest or the strongest. Um, bobsleigh being the sport that it is where you know, two people or four people are paired out together. It's all about chemistry and how your strengths complement the strengths of another person on your team. Um, I think four man is a perfect example of how just because you're the fastest person on the team doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to be the best, you know, grouping on paper. You could have three guys like separate from the pilot, the three guys that sit in the back of the sled on paper, it could be the fastest, strongest, most powerful guys you've ever had in your team. But when you put them together, for some some reason, something's not clicking. And it's because they don't complement each other um, in some capacity. Um, in the in the relatively short time that I did four person bobsleigh or four man, we just say four man. Um, we were an all women's crew, and on paper, we had the fourth, the three uh, fastest girls on the team on the uh, you know pushing our pilot, and yet we weren't pushing that fast. And it wasn't until we put in one of the girls who wasn't necessarily the fastest, but technically was one of the more sound girls. And we were dropping times like nobody's business. So it's all about that complementary effect of, you know, you don't have to necessarily be the fastest, but, you know, fast enough, technically sound enough, powerful enough to contribute to your team. And then outside of the like physicality of the sport, you need to be a good team player. Um, there's nothing that frustrates me more than someone who thinks that, you know, they're better than anybody else and they, you know, no one can, um, light a candle to them and it doesn't want to work with anybody else because you'll find more often than not, people are less likely to help you out. Bobsleigh is a very, very niche sport. Um, and it's a very small sport when you compare it to other, other events and, even if you are on your respective team, you still need to rely on the help of your teammates who might slide on another sled or for another nation. Being a good team player and just being a good human being in general will take you further than just being raw talent and athletic. But if you're, you know, an a-hole, no one's going to want to necessarily help you out and people are praying for your downfall. My second to last question is... How are preparations going for 2022? Things are going pretty good. Um, this past season, even though it was kind of uh, shortened because of COVID and um, it was mostly European-based, we had no North American races, um, my season ended really well, and that has helped me um, position myself in a – put myself in a pretty good position for this upcoming season. Um you know, like I said, being a pilot, it takes about eight years to be, you know, a good, decent pilot where you're consistent and you're, um, you're not making the mistakes that, you know, will cause you to lose time. I'm still developing as a pilot. Um, and so mistakes will happen, but the fact that I can push fast has helped accelerate my progress in the sport. Um, and that this past season was kind of like a culmination of that. I was like, I'm still making mistakes, but my push was helping me um, make those mistakes not be as bad as they could be. And, you know, we're getting ready to have our first test camp in a few weeks. 
Um, then we're going to head over to Whistler, which is our, our home track here in Canada, before heading over to Asia and Europe to compete the season or begin the Olympic season. But right now, things are looking very good and very up for me. Last question. So we usually ask former athletes if their um, if their career was to be put into a Hollywood movie, what would be the title, and who would um, <laughs> who would um, star? Who would yeah? Who would play their character? But since you are a current athlete, let's switch it up. Mm -hmm. If your current career was to be put into a documentary, what would be the title of that documentary? And who would be the narrator and why? Who? I don't even know. I feel <laughs> like for narrator, for sure, you got to go with like Morgan Freeman. Like that's kind of like, oh, yeah, right? Like if out. you don't have Morgan Freeman narrating your documentary or like honorable mention to David Attenborough, if you don't have any one of those two guys narrating your life, like it's a wrap. <laughs> Just cancel the documentary. No one's going to watch it. Um, but in terms of title... I don't know. Like, I can't think of anything that wouldn't sound super cheesy and be like, oh, yeah, it's an athletic documentary. Okay. Um, I, I can't even think of a good one. Honestly, I, I, I can't think of a good one. That's a tricky one. We might even yeah. ask our listeners to maybe come up with one. <laughs> that would be interesting. That would be, be awesome. <laughs> okay, Cynthia, thank you. This was really, really packed. It was packed with so much information i had so many more questions because um you touched on so many topics and um it's definitely something that we probably need to revisit sometime um but yeah we really really appreciate you and we really thank thank you for coming on um lastly if anyone wants to get in contact with you how can they get in contact with you uh, easiest way would be Instagram or Twitter. Uh, my handle is the same for both. It's at the synapse. So at T H E C Y N A P P S. Okay. Thank you. No. Yeah, that was a really, really, really good <laughs> one. I'm looking forward to this one. Thank uh, you. Um, yeah, I really am. This a lot, a lot, a lot has been said. So yeah, we really appreciate you. Um, guys, you know how it goes. If you are a regular listener, thank you for listening. Ah, actually, it's the other way around, isn't it, Ed? Let's do this. Let's do this. If you are a new listener, welcome <laughs> aboard. <laughs> if you are a regular listener, thank you and continue to share. Until next time, guys, stay safe and stay blessed.